right, everybody, welcome. Well, one of the biggest questions that I get from students, from people online is on the topic of free will, mainly and specifically, how can I have free will if God knows the future, right? If God knows all things, if he has predestined things, if he's determined the outcome, how do I have choice in this? And aren't I just kind of stuck in God's plan? Well, this idea of free will, I think, begins with that question, but I think we kind of realize this, maybe this difficulty uh, of how to understand God's sovereignty, human freedom, but also taking a step back from a worldview approach, how this, I think, actually is good evidence for Christianity, the fact that we do have free will. And I will tell my high school students, and I've said it before on this show, that I think the very fact that we do have free will is evidence for God, for Christianity, and would falsify a naturalistic atheistic view. And so those are the different ideas that I want to talk about today. And joining me today to discuss these with me is my good friend, Tim Stratton. Tim, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, Ryan. It's good to see you again. Yeah, Tim, my goodness. So Tim also works with Maven. He's a field guide as well as I am, except for because you don't teach high school, you have the opportunity to do a lot more trips than I do. And so I'm a little bit mad about that. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wish I could work with you more often. But when we do get a chance to work together, we have way too much fun. So. Absolutely. Yes, we do. And so uh, uh, Tim Stratton also has his PhD in theology. He's just recently produced this book I have up here, Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism, a Philosophical, Historical, Theological, and Philosophical Analysis. Uh, so that is kind of going to be partially our conversation today. And what a lot of what we're going to talk about is included here in this book. And so maybe here really quick to start out, this isn't the main focus as I had you on before to discuss Molinism. We actually spent about an yeah. hour and a half discussing Molinism. And so today focusing more on the human freedom aspect. But can you, can you tell us maybe a little bit about the ideas that went into uh, the work that you did, your dissertation and uh, your book? Yeah, well, a lot of it started uh, even before I went to Biola University to do my master's degree. Um, I did start thinking quite a bit about the topics of free will and determinism. In fact, I used to be uh, an exhaustive determinist, what I uh, refer to as an exhaustive divine determinist. I, uh, you know, ED is a good acronym to uh, remember that by, exhaustive divine determinism. I used to affirm that. So not only was I a five-point Calvinist, I applied that across the board, that determinism across the board uh, universally and Therefore, I reached the conclusion that I did not have free will. I started interacting with atheists um, and realized that they called themselves free thinkers, but at the same time denied free will. And I thought, well, that's kind of uh, contradictory. Um, and I started pressing that more and realized, wow, uh, if they believe that physics and chemistry ultimately runs the entire show, and if physics and chemistry causally determines them to affirm a false belief, then they have no ability to reason otherwise. They have no ability to infer or affirm a better or true belief. And yet they claim to be free thinkers. And I realized, well, that's a problem. And then it hit me. And I, and I realized, wow, I've got the same problem, but for different reasons, because I believe that God causally determined everything about me. And even when I would affirm a false belief, I believe that God made that happen. And therefore, it would be impossible for me to infer or affirm a better or true belief. And so I started uh, really uh, studying uh, free will and different views of free will and came to the conclusion that uh, we do have to have free will in the libertarian sense, at least occasionally, at least in appropriate circumstances, if we are really going to affirm uh, that we are rational 
creatures who can uh, uh, rationally infer claims of knowledge and affirm claims of knowledge. Uh, and so then I realized, okay, how are we going to make sense of that? And so, yeah, I've really spent the last decade uh, focused on this issue. Yeah. Uh, as a Christian, then, when I realized, wow, I've got, you know, I, am, I do have to affirm free will. What do I do with all the passages of Scripture that I thought uh, made, made it clear that determinism was true? And so in my book that, that you already showed, uh, I spent so much time uh, not just with the philosophical arguments, um, arguing for libertarian freedom, but then with scripture and uh, theological arguments, trying to make sure we have a systematic view uh, that uh, all works with each other, that's not affirming any contradictions and makes sense of all scripture. So that's yeah. in a nutshell uh, what's behind the book. That's wonderful to start out with. And again, like I, I think I, what I want to start with here is a lot of um, definitions, because I think uh, I, at least, you know, my thumbnail talking about what atheism can't explain, the Christianity explains it better, what is free will, we have to know what free will means, what we mean by atheism, because uh, one of the last videos I did with Frank Turk, it was like a two minute short video on how atheism makes reason impossible. It upset a lot of atheists. And because, again, there's some different views uh, when it comes to atheism. So I want to take some time to try to explain this in a well or maybe define things in a way that we can all kind of be on the same page of, as to what we're talking about. And that hopefully then in this conversation, what we're going to be doing is giving a good argument that free will actually does exist, how that really does disprove naturalism and atheism uh, and then mm -hmm. pointing to Christianity and hopefully then uh, knowing how free will fits in with our Christian beliefs and then be able to defend free will and why that is good evidence for God, then allowing us to faithfully live out our Christian beliefs as we evangelize and we talk to people and giving us another tool that we can use to start conversations that can hopefully bring people into the kingdom. And so that's the goal that we have here. So maybe a few definitions right off the start. Uh, when you say free will, uh, how would you define free will? Yeah, well, in my book, I give several definitions. Uh, I'm talking about libertarian free will. So um, many often say, well, uh, what is libertarian freedom? It is the conjunction uh, of two propositions. Uh, one, that free will is uh, not compatible with determinism, along with the other uh, proposition that at least occasionally we are free. Uh, others would define it by saying, uh, you've got free will if you have the ability to do otherwise. That's also known as the principle of alternative possibilities, uh, abbreviated as the PAP, the P-A-P. Right? So if I have an ability to think, believe, or act otherwise, uh, then you would have the principle of alternative possibilities and you would have libertarian free will. Um, but oftentimes I uh, note that I might not be able to demonstrate an ability to do otherwise, but if I can demonstrate that I am simply the source of a thought or, a, or, or action. Um, if I'm the first thinker or the first mover ever, in a sense, as Aristotle might say, uh, then, <clears throat> then I've still got libertarian freedom. As long as I'm not causally determined in thought or action, when I think or act, if I'm not causally determined by something or someone else, then I'm free in a libertarian sense, even if for some weird reason I cannot think or act otherwise. Uh, oftentimes, though, when or I should say whenever possible, I like to defend a definition of libertarian freedom that uh, is stated like this, uh, that I've got libertarian freedom if I possess the ability to 
ever choose between or among a range of alternative, alternative options, each of which are compatible with my nature. Um, so the key there is, uh, I'm saying I've got a range of options, of alternative options, each of which is compatible with my nature at a given moment. And so it's, it's key not to miss the word compatible there. I'm not saying that libertarian freedom is the ability to do something that's not compatible with my nature. I simply point out that at least occasionally, I have multiple options that are each compatible with my nature at a given moment. So if that's true, then I've got libertarian freedom. And I think that's good because um, I find that, you know, I spent this morning actually dialoguing with atheists on Twitter because I was wanting I was wanting more of their objections and more of their thoughts behind this to be able to kind of present some reasons if they didn't join. If you're here, awesome. Thanks for being here. But I was trying to get the best I could uh, from them. And it, it seemed like some were making this objection of like, but we are confined. We are constrained. There are some restrictions in the sense that, um, uh, you know, and they weren't saying this, but like, I can't just go fly like a bird. I can't swim for an hour under the ocean without not, like a fish. Like okay. my nature does confine me. My, my nature uh, does restrict me in the things that I can do. But, we, so, but with your definition, that doesn't take away free will. Not at all. It just means there's some things I can't do, but that doesn't mean that there's not several things uh, that aren't available to me. I, I even though I can't uh, flap my arms uh, like wings and fly like a bird to the top of a sk uh, skyscraper, that doesn't mean I can't take the stairs. It doesn't mean I can't take the elevator. It doesn't mean I can't take a helicopter uh, to the top. It doesn't mean I can say, no, nah, I don't want to go to the top. I'm just going to stay down here and look up there. Uh, it doesn't mean I still don't have a range of alternative options that are each compatible with my nature at that moment. So if I ever have the ability to choose between or among a range of options that are each uh, compatible with my nature at that moment, then I've got libertarian freedom. But like I said, even if I don't have that, but I can, but I can show that I am the source and not causally determined by something or someone else, then I've still got libertarian freedom. So oftentimes I'll, I'll go back and forth between those, but whenever possible in my book, I do uh, argue for that uh, being able to choose between a range of alternative options each of which is compatible with my nature at that moment. That's good, because I think a lot of times uh, today, you know, people hear free and they think, oh, man, free, I can do anything. And it's like, no, there's right. a lot that you, you know, you are a free being, but there's still a lot of things that we should not do. And there are things that we cannot do, but that doesn't take away from our freedom. Yeah. Freedom is, you know, the ability to do what you've been created to do. You know, things consistent with your nature, not being able to do anything. Uh, now, you've also already a few times used the word determinism or this, you know, causally determined. So can you kind of help us understand uh, what is determinism for those who don't know, haven't heard that word? Yeah, what I am arguing against is the view that uh, something or someone else uh, always causally determines everything about you. Uh, that, that at least occasionally you are not causally determined by something or someone else. So typically uh, that's the, the gist of it uh, when people are talking about determinism or more uh, specifically causal determinism. Uh, and the way I cash that out is something or someone else, you know, other than the thing that you refer to as I, right? When you say I, I think, or I believe, whatever, if there's something other than the thing you call I causally determining everything about you, then you are not free. Uh, you're not free to think, you're not free to act. And I would argue then you're not responsible. Okay. So now when it comes to kind of this idea that things that atheism can't explain, I understand that atheists 
have different beliefs and, and they will disagree on things. But when we talk about atheism, I also put in the thumbnail or materialism or naturalism, uh, those can kind of be defined in different ways. Um, for kind of the purpose of this conversation, uh, how would you like to define uh, atheism or, or naturalism, materialism? Would you have different definitions for those or kind of? Yeah. Um, okay. So atheism is, uh, if one affirms atheism is true, or if one says I am an atheist, they are saying, um, well, the traditional definition would be that God does not exist. Correct. Uh, now it really, um, you've got some agnostics that really love the word atheism for some reason. Um, and just want to say, well, I just don't have a belief in God. Um, but if, uh, I would say if God does not exist, then the worldview of atheism would be true. Um, so uh, for the sake of our conversation, I will define atheism or the atheist as one who believes that God does not exist or atheism as the view that God does not exist. Uh, now, a naturalist is uh, not, let's see, all naturalists are atheists, but not all atheists are naturalists. Uh, so a naturalist is one who believes that nature is all that exists. So what is nature? Well, I like to cash that out by saying, uh, nature is what scientists, uh, test and discover. <laughs> um, so anything that's possible for a scientist to test or discover would be nature. Science is the study of nature. So, uh, the naturalist assumes that all that exists is what is potentially or possibly testable or discoverable by science or scientists. Um, so yeah, that'd be a naturalist. Uh, however, so if, an, if naturalism is true, then uh, things that are other than nature do not exist. And God, is, by definition, is other than nature. Um, angels and demons would not exist. Abstract objects would not exist. Uh, you know, there's debate between atheists on that. Sh should they affirm the existence of abstract objects? I believe Daniel Dennett says no. Um, Eric Wielenberg uh, would say yes. Uh, you know, and don't press me too much on, on their views. That's what I think yeah, I, yeah. each one uh, affirm. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I think I'm right. Uh, so... Uh, and obviously then the human soul and the image of God would not exist if God does not exist <laughs> or yeah. anything like God does yeah. not. Exist. That's what I think Alvin Plantinga defined. Uh, I think I quoted him in my book as well, um, saying that naturalism is the view that God or anything like God does not exist. So, so would you yeah. say then, yeah, so that's very helpful. And, and so not necessarily every atheist is a naturalist. Uh, or as I sometimes say, a materialist yeah. believing that only the material world exists. Uh, so we're not saying that every single atheist only believes in the material natural world, but would you say that that is maybe a, a the majority? Uh, would that be a fair statement? The majority of atheists are naturalists? Uh, yeah, at least it seems that that's true. <laughs> as far as my experience goes, uh, when I, if I'm on the college campus uh, having... Uh, interaction with scientists and philosophers, I would say the vast majority of the atheists affirm uh, that uh, naturalism is true um, and that nature is all that exists. 
Okay. So that was kind of, uh, as I did one of the first videos, uh, as I mentioned with Frank Turek and talked about how atheism makes reason impossible. Atheism, they're defined as naturalism. Um, uh, the objection came in. Uh, let me pull it up here. Uh, the objection came in and said, well, hold on. If you mean a philosophical materialism or naturalism, yeah, sure. Reason's impossible. Just like there's no way of knowing if we're in a simulation or if there's a God. Of course, though, most don't subscribe to philosophical materialism. And so, kind of, what would your thoughts be on this of atheists saying, yeah, if naturalism is true, there is no free will, but you can be an atheist and not a naturalist, and so, therefore, you don't need God to, to believe kind of in free will? Uh, okay, well, uh, several things. Uh, first, um, you know, we can possess... Did they, did they say that, uh, that we can't know? If God exists, is that what they, is that what they said? It's, it says there's no way of knowing if we're in a simulation or if there is a God. Okay, well, first of all, I disagree with that. Uh, we we can't possess knowledge of God's existence. Uh, I would say we can know it uh, via, you know, maybe something similar to what Alan Plantinga would uh, describe as a warrant and proper function. And you know, if that's not working for you, we can also know it via reason and logical argumentation. Uh, I I, you know, it seems like many Christians over the past 2000 years haven't had access to arguments, um, yet they would say that they knew uh, that God existed. Well, maybe something like what Plantinga describes is true. But I also know people personally who uh, uh, didn't have that sense at all, um, but they came to believe in God and the truth of Christianity uh, via evidential means uh, and through argumentation. And so I think you can come to God. I think that's how awesome God is. He <laughs> provides several different means to find him. Um, but uh, so that's the first thing. I think we can know uh, that God exists contra the claim there. But yeah. second, you know, I'd want to ask, what does he mean? Um, let's see. Uh, was, was that? Let's see. Do you have the uh, I'm trying to. Oh, yeah, there it is. Of course, most of us don't subscribe to philosophical material. Yeah, what does he mean by most of us is is what I want to know. Um, because I would I would reference uh, Sam Harris, um, Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Alex Rosenberg, Sean Carroll. In fact, as a, as a footnote in my book, the vast majority of philosophers today, especially scientists, but I think this is a... Uh, a survey of philosophers as well uh, would affirm this uh, determinism that would follow from uh, naturalism being true. Uh, and, and even many theists would hold that view as well. And I would disagree with them as well. So of course, I'm not arguing that all assume such a view. In fact, in, I, in my book, I quote a couple atheist philosophers who would agree with me regarding the libertarian freedom to think and reach rational conclusions. Uh, uh, John Searle, uh, for one, he's an atheist, uh, believes we have uh, the freedom to think. Uh, and Evan Fales is another atheist who would uh, who argues in the same way. So they they would be in the minority, but uh, I would say most atheists affirm naturalism, and therefore uh, most of them affirm determinism that there is no free will. Yeah, in the so that's wonderful um, and that's helpful. And so I guess the question then becomes, and we're going to get to this in a moment of your your free thinking argument 
you know, kind of for God's existence on how we can show this idea because we are thinking, uh, because we have free will, that is good art, uh, evidence for the soul and for the existence of God. And we'll get there. But if if it's possible or if these atheists do uh, hold to atheism, that there is no God and, and can still show that free will is possible in the libertarian sense, then how can we use free will a- as evidence for God if it's still possible without God? Uh well, I don't. <laughs> I, that's the. Or would you say? Or would you say then the the atheist who like this comment says, "Well, yes, if naturalism is true, uh, there is no free will." But I'm not a naturalist. I can be an atheist, not be a naturalist, hold the free will, and it makes perfect sense within my worldview. Uh, well, I would push back on the perfect sense, and I'm going to say, "What's the best explanation of freedom here?" And so I, I would say, "Well, let's look at." So I, I would say, I mean, as far as I know. Uh, John Searle and Evan Fales, I could be wrong here. I haven't read all their work, um, but I don't think they provide models trying to explain. And I have seen some atheists try to provide models that would give them access to liber- libertarian freedom, and I don't think they're uh, I don't think they're successful. Um, but I do think that uh, theism does have access to this. So then I would just say, let's, uh, let's engage in the inference to the best explanation at this point. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, the vast majority, vast majority of atheistic naturalists affirm exhaustive determinism uh, because they realize that um, there is no, you know, there, there's not really a good model out there um, on a naturalistic view that would allow uh, the libertarian freedom to think and okay. to be rational. Yeah. yeah, I think that's good. And, and I and this kind of goes on to the next comment. Again, these are comments that came in on my YouTube channel on the previous video uh, that I want to kind of talk through with you. Uh, what we're talking about here is not what does a person believe, but what is possible within their worldview, right? That That's what we're mm-hmm. going for. And there's a lot of people that believe different things, but is it consistent? Now, you mentioned here that some of these uh, atheist philosophers don't have or provide necessarily a model or explanation. And we'll get to some explanations that atheists do provide. Um, here in just a moment before we get into kind of the Christian view. Uh, but this guy commented in and said, uh, you don't have to know the origin of a car to use it, nor do we have to have an account for reason or free will. We simply have to apply it and see that it works or is reliable. Having an explanation that can account for something does not show the explanation is true. So what would you say to this idea of like, yeah, these philosophers, yeah, they don't have models, but you don't have to have a model. Uh, we can apply free will and, and thinking and, and therefore know it's true without having an explanation for it. Okay, well, I'd say that that's pretty boring and uh, unacademic. I mean, sure, it's, uh, you know, that's just why it's called the inference to the best explanation. Usually, rational people want to figure out things and figure out what's, you know, what is the best explanation for this thing that we're using. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the inference to the best explanation. It's what philosophers, historians, <laughs> lawyers, judges, juries, detectives, and even medical doctors engage in every single day. Uh, they, they, uh, look at all the data and infer the best explanation based on the data. And moreover, uh, one does not have to know, for example, where babies come from to run a nursery, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, one can do just fine taking care of little kids if they believe that, uh, the babies come from a stork, uh, you know, that the stork flies the babies in, you can still run a nursery. However, it says quite a lot about a person who isn't willing to look at all the data to, to see if, you know, said babies or belief in babies coming from storks is the best explanation 
based upon all the data or or not. So uh, now again, it'd be quite problematic uh, for you know if one's worldview said there's no such thing as babies and they ran a nursery. I mean that you know that'd be uh, well. And that that was uh, yeah that was my compare. response to this objection. Is I said yeah you don't have to know the origin of a car in order to drive one. But if your worldview says cars don't exist and you're driving a car, there's a problem. Right. So if you have <laughs> a naturalist, exactly. you have a naturalistic worldview that says there is no free will or free will is impossible. Everything is determined. Yet you believe that there's free will. There's a contradiction there between yeah. what you believe and your worldview. And that's what we're trying to point out here. The other, I think, approach that you're taking that is so good is is then we can do inference to the best explanation. OK, we both agree there's free will. Good. What's your explanation for it? Well, right. we have a God explanation, which we'll get to later in the conversation, and we have a naturalistic explanation that is what we're going to look at here in a moment, and which one actually makes more sense. So here's a baby, stork, or human reproduction system, right? <laughs> like, even though you have an explanation doesn't mean it's true. And, I, and so right. as this comment points out, having an explanation that accounts for something doesn't mean the explanation is true. Absolutely. Right. Just mm -hmm. because you say stork or reproduction system doesn't mean you're right. The question is whose explanation actually fits the way the reality, the way the world That's works. Right. So. Yeah. With, you know, Christmas coming around the corner, uh, we can engage in that, too. What's the best explanation for the Christmas presents under the tree? Is it Santa Claus or your parents? Yeah. <laughs> or they popped into existence out of nothing. That's right. <laughs> under the tree. <laughs> so again, I, I just want to clarify that because if you know the atheist is watching, I think there's two different ways to approach it is if your worldview says there is no such thing as free will and you believe that's true, you have a contradiction that has to be solved. You either have to give out, give up free will or change your worldview. Uh, now, if you do think there's a good explanation or that your worldview offers an explanation, now we have to evaluate those explanations. So here's a couple uh, comments that came in on that. Um, First one, reason or free will is an emergent property of the brain that has developed over many years of evolution. If it did not work to benefit the human species, the, cap the cap capability most likely would not have been developed. So here's a naturalistic explanation. Evolution gave us our free will and our reasoning abilities. What would you say? I'd say not so fast. Um, <laughs> uh, in my book, I reference Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism. Uh, that's abbreviated as the E-A-A-N. Uh, but yeah, it's evolutionary argument against naturalism. And this argument shows that there's an undercutting defeater against the beliefs of the evolutionist who also affirms naturalism since his belief-forming faculties are not aimed at truth. Uh, what are they aimed at? They're aimed at survival. Um, now, of course, that does not entail that he never attains true beliefs. That's not the argument. It's simply showing the problem of having cognitive faculties uh, that are not aimed at truth. They're aimed at survival. So this might work great when it comes to things like uh, uh, tiger avoidance behavior <laughs> or you know, crossing the street. You probably don't need free will to cross the street. Um, but, but why think it should apply to metaphysical beliefs uh, like the ones we're discussing here? Now, really, this gets us to premise three of the free thinking argument that I'll be sh uh, sharing here in a little bit. But I'll give you some uh, a little uh, foreshadowing here. Yeah. If something outside of human control causally determines you to affirm a false belief, then it would be impossible for you to infer or affirm a better belief uh, or let alone the truth. So if our thoughts and beliefs are are forced upon us and we could not have chosen better thoughts and beliefs, then we're simply left assuming that our determined thoughts and beliefs are good 
uh, let alone that our beliefs are true. So therefore, if that's the case, then we can never rationally affirm that our beliefs really are the inference to the best explanation. We can only assume it. And guess what? That assumption is not up to you either. It's something completely out of your control. Uh, now, I like to give a, a short thought experiment here uh, to make my point. Yeah. So uh, suppose, suppose a mad scientist somehow gets control of your brain and everything you think of, right? I don't know what he did. He, um, you know, he, in your sleep, he implanted some microchips and electrodes in, in your brain. Now he's got, he's got control of what you think about. So now this mad scientist causally determines everything about you, all of your thoughts and beliefs all the time. This, all your thoughts about your beliefs and all your beliefs about your thoughts, all of them, none of them are up to you. They're all up to the mad scientist. So this, this includes exactly what you think of and about, and more importantly, exactly how you always think of and about it, right? So not just the what you think of and about, but the how you're thinking of, of and about it, always. So all of your thoughts about your beliefs and all your beliefs about your thoughts are caused and determined by the mad scientist. This also includes the next words that are forming in your head and the next words that'll, that'll come out of your mouth. So with that in mind, I have a question. How can you, not the mad scientist, rationally affirm the current beliefs in your head as good, bad, better, the best, true, or probably true, right? Note the range of alternative options from which to choose, right? How can you, not the mad scientist, rationally affirm that your current beliefs in your head are good, bad, better, the best, true, or probably true without begging the question, which is a logical fallacy? Well, good luck with that. It's impossible it's, you can't do it. It's metaphysically impossible. Now, if that's the case, replace the mad scientist with physics and chemistry or anything else, and you got the exact same rationality problems, but for different reasons. So uh, really, both Planiga's evolutionary argument against naturalism and the free-thinking argument against naturalism that I'm going to share here in a little bit are reasons, reasons to reject uh, the claim that evolution can solve the problem. In fact, the uh, what, here's an interesting side note. The evolutionary biologist uh, here at the local University of Nebraska, um, that's where I'm from, is Nebraska. So uh, the, the, the head evolutionary biologist, uh, she and I used to debate all the time um, as an atheistic uh, evolutionary biologist. Uh, we, would, we would just uh, argue all the time and I kept pressing her with this, uh, what would follow on naturalistic, on a naturalistic worldview. No freedom, no freedom to think, no freedom to rationally infer the best explanation, no freedom to rationally affirm knowledge claims. And about after a year of debating <laughs> several times a week, she finally came to the conclusion that she's got to have free will. Um, and then she realized, but that doesn't make sense on her naturalistic worldview. Well, guess what? Not only did she start affirming libertarian free will, uh, she has now rejected atheism wow. and actually now affirms uh, Christianity. Um, and she would affirm uh, a theistic evolution. Now she's still an evolutionary biologist after all. Um, but, uh, but I mean, she definitely rejects atheistic naturalism. So yeah. anyway, uh, well, that's, the point is evolution is not going to get you off this hook. 
Yeah, and I think that's so good to point out again of like how this can happen in natural conversations. And that's my goal for those who are listening and, and watching is that is that these ideas begin to sink in where we find new ways to bring up conversations with people and help point them to the truth of Christianity. And I think a couple yeah. things that you said are so important is that evolution is designed to help survival, not truth. Uh, there's a lot of things that are false that we can believe that ends up helping us survive better. Um, now, one way that I have commented before to people, and I'm curious if you would uh, think this is a rational way to go about this, is I said, uh, look, if you are going to claim that, that evolution has produced all of our beliefs, um, then you have to agree that evolution produces, you have to agree that evolution produces false beliefs. Why? Uh, here's an argument. Premise one, evolution produced my belief in God. Premise two, belief in God is false according to atheism. Therefore, conclusion, evolution produced my false belief in God. Like, yeah. you would have to say evolution does produce false beliefs. Now, how do you determine which one is true and which one's false of the beliefs that evolution has produced? Yeah, and uh, I mean, this the, the atheist has to affirm uh, this, this argument of yours. Um, and it, I think it could be shown that... Um, belief in Christianity actually helps uh, leads to uh, human flourishing. Um, and so even if it was false, it leads to human flourishing, right? So it would be a false belief, according to the atheist, yeah. uh, that helps survival. Um, so yeah, I think you're right in, in showing that uh, if that's the case, then they have to affirm the evolutionary argument against naturalism, <laughs> which would then undercut their naturalism. Yeah. <laughs> so now, yeah. A, a, a comment that came in. So, you know, I, I debated a naturalist uh, over the summer. And uh, one of the comments he, he said is that he said that uh, rocks can do math. And I said, what do you mean rocks can do math? And he says they figure out the fastest way down the mountain when they're rolling down a mountain. Uh, and then they choose to go that way. And it kind of was very similar to a comment I got just this morning from an atheist on Twitter who said, um, your choice, you have the choice, but it's not a free choice. And I said, well, then how are you defining choice? And he said, it's like a coin sorting machine. Uh, it's it's choosing where to put each coin, uh, but it's a machine. And he said that that is the same way that we function. And so we are making choices, but their choice is programmed into us. And I think that that's a very helpful illustration because it, it goes what you're, what you're saying is that if the machine were to make a mistake and put a dime in the slot where the quarter is supposed to go, the machine probably would not the machine doesn't know that the machine doesn't go, Oh, oops. Oh no, I made a mistake. Like if it made that, if it threw that coin there, it's, it's not going to know. It's not consciously thinking where it's going to put these coins. It's just doing what it's been programmed to do. Yeah. A big issue here is intentionality. Rocks do not possess intentional states of consciousness. Yeah. And so uh, what is, what is intentionality? Philosophers um, usually cash that out by saying intentionality is uh, the ofness or aboutness of something else. So uh, my table is not of or about my chair. Uh, my laptop is not of or about uh, this light. You know, <laughs> um, But I uh, can take a moment to think uh, about my wife and about my son and uh, of uh, my, you know, of, of other things. I, I have a, an ability to be of and about things, right? Rocks do not have that. Uh, computers, as Alex Rosenberg has noted uh, in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality. And he's, an, he's one of the most influential atheists in the, in the world today um, at Duke University. And he makes it clear in his book that, uh, that computers, for example, are not intentional. They do not think of and about things. 
and then since he uh, assumes that humans are nothing but advanced computers, he says, well, we don't think of and about things either. I'm like, well, I'm thinking of and about your book right now. <laughs> We're thinking of and about these arguments under dispute. Did We're you not just think about what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he did. Um, here's the thing. Think about the inference to the best explanation, right? Rocks do not have that ability. Uh, and if you do not have an ability to think of and about competing hypotheses, then you have no ability to rationally choose the better hypothesis or the hypothesis or the best explanation. Yeah. So you have to have, there's two things you have to have for rationality, I argue. One is intentional states of consciousness. Uh, second is the libertarian freedom, you know, not to be causally determined by something or someone else uh, as a rational agent. Because if something or someone outside of your control or if something outside of human control causally determines uh, Jack, to affirm a false belief, then it's impossible for Jack to infer or affirm a better or true belief. And so we, we see there that uh, you've got to be free, at least in the source sense. Uh, but I would argue even in the uh, to choose between a range. Look, if something or someone else causally determines me and locks it in, as it were, um, to evaluate a proposition as good and only good, Right? That's the only thing I can do if causal determinism is true. Then that means I've got these other possible judgments or evaluations that are just, I don't have access to. Well, if something other than me, if that mad scientist, again, causally determines me to judge or evaluate a proposition as good, then I have no ability to access uh, the judgment of bad or worse or not as good or probably false right because i'm locked in as it were to judge it as good and so i i have if that's the case i have no ability to rationally affirm that i should have judged it or evaluated the proposition as yeah. good that was just causally determined by something other than me so yeah. i am nothing but a passive cog at the mercy of the whims of the mad scientist or physics and chemistry right <laughs> if uh exhaustive determinism is true that's good and that's why that's why even atheists like john Searle will say look even if i can't figure out and provide a model of how we have free will we've still got to affirm it yeah you can't dismiss it yeah yeah and that's what we're going to get to here in a little bit there's two kind of more other explanations or at least responses that i've gotten from atheists that i want to look at here but i think that at least that's that's one of the most common is this idea that um you know, emergent property of the brain that's been, you know, developed by evolution and trying to look at, okay, how, how would a naturalist try to explain this? Uh, and does that explanation make sense? Because I don't want to be a Christian where I just say, you have no explanation, no explanation makes sense. It's like, no, you do try to explain it, but it's not best. Like this, there's a lot of, uh, of, of holes in this explanation, as well as those who say, no, you're right. There is no free will. Right. And so we are going to get to, again, kind of the comeback is like, well, but you Christians don't have free will either. As I mentioned at the beginning, God has determined your future. And so we're going to get to the Christian perspective and and working through that here in just a moment. Uh, but next one up here that I have um, is there we go. Um, it seems very simple. It works. It's consistent. So why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, as soon as somebody says uh, we can use reason, um, and, and, and that this works, then that person is assuming uh, that he is not causally determined by something else. So 
if physics and chemistry causally determines this person, like I said, to affirm a false belief, then it's impossible for him or her to affirm a better or true belief. I mean, it's really just that simple. However, if he can infer or affirm better or true beliefs, then he's not causally determined by factors outside of his control. And if that's the case, then this is, by definition, uh, the epitome of libertarian freedom. Yeah, that's good. And so um, kind of as we move on, and that was the last one there, um, I just want to say like, hey, if you're an atheist and you're watching live, like, please comment and please kind of present other options if you think there are better explanations. And we don't want to just uh, present I'm not trying to present straw man, right? We're not, we're trying to deal with kind of the big issues here and work through it. And so um, moving on to kind of a, a Christian response then, um, starting with maybe before Christianity, um, how would you, how would you defend the fact that we are free rather than it being an illusion? Because I just got the response this morning of, no, you think you're free, but it's an, yeah. it's an illusion, right? Your brain is, is tricking you to think that you're making a choice, but that choice was predetermined. So how would you actually argue and explain clearly like, no, I, I'm not just thinking I am free. I actually do have freedom in the libertarian sense. Yeah. So I, I give, uh, I have a family of free thinking arguments uh, that I, that I discuss in my book. Um, so I would encourage people to, to get that and take a look at it. Uh, so several, yeah, there you go. Several <laughs> arguments that are related uh, that show that it's it can't be an illusion, um, and it deductively uh, proves uh, that we do possess libertarian freedom. And the only way out of this then is to reject uh, one of the uh, premises that leads to that deductive conclusion. So, um, I guess uh, would now be a good time to share the free thinking argument. Okay, so we're going to go through. Uh, I would like to go through much of what I wrote in this article today. Uh, now, I gotta make it quick. I would say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say another uh, uh, article, a blog that I wrote is called Thinking About Free Thinking. Uh, that one, uh, I discussed the mad scientist in that one. I have a, a few other um, articles that get into this. But um, yeah, let me, uh, okay, I'm just gonna go through. I th this will be pretty close, I think, to what you've got there. I, I just pulled up some other notes of mine. There we go. Uh, but, um, all right. So this argument, I've got the what I call the core of the free thinking argument, which would just simply be uh, here, steps three, four and five. So that says if I just do that, it says nothing about atheism, naturalism uh, or any other ism. Right. It's just uh, just looking at three, four and five. I could simply say if libertarian freedom does not exist, then it's impossible to either uh, rationally infer or rationally affirm. Or probably a better way to say it, if libertarian freedom does not exist, then it's impossible to rationally infer and rationally affirm knowledge, knowledge claims. But then I'll say, but it is possible to rationally infer and rationally affirm knowledge claims. Therefore, libertarian freedom exists. Uh, so uh, that uh, three-step syllogism is uh, valid and sound. Um, and I've already ex explained why that first premise is true. If something or someone other than you causally determines you to affirm a false belief, then it's impossible for you to infer or affirm a better or true belief. Um, and then the mad scientist thought experiment drives that home. Um, so now all you've got left is to, uh, is to deny the, the, that other premise. 
and say, no, it's not possible to rationally infer and rationally affirm knowledge claims. Well, think about that. I mean, uh, nobody wants to do that. Yeah, so, is that a rational knowledge claim? <laughs> it's exactly. It's self-defeating, right. right. Making so, a rational knowledge claim in order to say that you can't make rational knowledge claims. Right, right. So it's you can't deny it. Uh, you know, some have said that this is the most powerful metaphysical argument they've, they've ever encountered because it really becomes impossible to reject either uh, premise. Now, if that's the case, then the deductive conclusion follows, therefore libertarian freedom exists. Now, this has made many atheists mad. It's made many Christians mad. All right. But let's expand this now. And this is what I call now the the uh, free thinking argument against naturalism. And so that will start with premise one. Uh, and that simply says, if naturalism is true, uh, the immaterial or, you know, other than nature, <laughs> the supernatural human soul does not exist. Premise two, if the soul does not exist, libertarian freedom does not exist. Three, if libertarian freedom does not exist, then it's impossible to rationally infer and rationally affirm knowledge claims. Four, it is possible to rationally infer and rationally affirm knowledge claims. Five, therefore, libertarian freedom exists. Six, therefore, the soul exists. Seven, therefore, naturalism is false. And eight, the best explanation of the existence of libertarian freedom and the soul is God. Now, I like to even make it stronger sometimes and say the best explanation of the existence of libertarian freedom and the soul is the biblical view of God. But with that said, let me quickly d defend uh, the first four premises uh, very, very briefly. Yeah. Uh, the first step, premise one, uh, the first step of the syllogism is synonymous with if naturalism is true, nature is all that exists. Right. That's non-controversial since it's yeah. true by definition. That's what it means. Right. Yeah. So uh, rarely does uh, an atheist try to refute that one. Premise two is tantamount to. If all that exists is nature, then all that exists is causally determined by the forces of nature, the initial conditions of the Big Bang, and things outside of human control. Now, that's what naturalism, by definition, seems to imply. And it seems to be the view of the majority of academic naturalists in the world today. In fact, uh, to defend this premise, I often quote you know, some of the folks I, I mentioned earlier, uh, Sam Harris wrote a whole book on it, uh, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, uh, Alex Rosenberg, Sean Carroll. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Uh, they make my case for me. They defend premise two for me. Now, as I noted, there's a couple atheists that will disagree with these guys. And I think, uh, well, anyway, I'll just bracket that. I'll get back to that. All right. So the vast majority of atheists defend that premise for me. Uh, premise three communicates the fact that if something outside of human control causally determines you to affirm a false belief, then it would be impossible for you to infer or affirm a better or true belief. So think about that. If, if all of our thoughts and beliefs are forced upon us and we could not have chosen better thoughts and beliefs, then we're simply left assuming that our determined thoughts and beliefs which are not up to us, are good and true. So therefore, if that's the case, then we can never rationally affirm that our beliefs, based upon our thinking, right, really is the inference to the best explanation. We can only offer question-begging assumptions as opposed to rational affirmation, right? So 
a question begging assumption is a logical fallacy. So we're looking for rational affirmations, not question begging assumptions. So here's the big problem for the natural or for the naturalistic determinist, uh, or at least for the, I think for the naturalist, uh, it logically follows that if naturalism is true, then one cannot possess re what I call reason based knowledge. Uh, now knowledge is typically and minimally defined as justified true belief. Now, if somebody wants to say, no, you don't need justification for knowledge, fine, I'll just talk about justified beliefs. But most epistemologists, uh, I, it seems to me, will at least say uh, minimally you need justification, right? You need to have justified true belief, maybe something more. Um, but you got to have at least those three things. Now, one can happen to hold, hold a belief that happens to be true, but if there is no justification then for that specific belief, then that belief would not qualify as a reason-based knowledge claim. Right. And if one cannot freely infer the best explanation, then there's no justification that a given belief really is the best explanation. And without justification, then reason-based knowledge uh, seems to go out the window. All one is left with, again, is that logical fallacy of question-begging assumptions. But obviously, humans can rationally infer and affirm claims of knowledge. And again, to argue otherwise is to affirm it. So premise four then must be true uh, because it's negation uh, does affirm it. The negation proves it um, as one would have to offer knowledge to the contrary. And moreover, I mean, think about this. If a person rejects knowledge, I've had one, one atheist do this, this atheist blogger from Australia uh, rejected uh, his ability to rationally infer and affirm knowledge claims. Okay, well, if that's the case, then why should anybody listen to him? Yeah. Uh, you know, why should anybody listen to the person who rejects premise four? So, yeah, rejecting premise four is the last thing and the last thing anybody should ever want to do. Now, if these four premises of the syllogism are true, one can rationally and deductively conclude that libertarian freedom is possessed. By, hum by humanity, at least in some instances, in some appropriate circumstances. Um, we can conclude then, based on this syllogism, that the soul or some immaterial aspect of humanity exists. If you don't like the word soul, fine. I don't care what you call it. Call it a, a schmoll. I don't care what you call it. <laughs> um, we're looking at some kind of immaterial other than nature aspect of humanity. Now, yeah. finally, uh, we can then deductively conclude that naturalism is false. So that is to say, uh, conclusions five, six, and seven are all deductive conclusions. And this means that they must be true if the premises are true. And since we have good reason to believe each of the premises are in fact true, we also have justification in the affirmation of each of the deductive conclusions. So that leads us to uh, that abductive conclusion. And, and really, uh, I, I have argued with some atheists, one uh, philosophy grad student uh, who's, who's an atheist, he wound up affirming each premise and each deductive conclusion and then just said, nah, I reject your abductive conclusion. Number eight. And I'm like, oh, yeah, number eight. And I said, all right, let's, let's see, let's compare explanations here. Uh, yeah. What do you think is a better explanation? And that's where the that's where the fun begins. Now, I think yeah. I think atheists really quickly like John Searle and Evan Fales would probably they want to uh, go after premise three, which is what most people do. Um, but these atheists would go after 
premise two. Um, and that's where the debate would be. But the vast majority, um, they, you know, premise three is like uh, bait, <laughs> like, like on a hook. I, I cast out the argument and premise three, that's all they see. You just want to bite that hook. And I think that's yeah. a mistake. If I was an atheist, I'd go after premise two or affirm everything and then uh, talk about um, uh, abductive conclusion eight. So, yeah. So I just want to kind of present an idea to you here. If I can get my, I don't know why my, my camera is not switching over to me here really quick. Um, there we go. Uh, looking at your argument, uh, an illustration that I often use uh, for this is um, calculators. Um, and, and so kind of like, uh, again, the, the atheist this morning that told me that we're just like a coin sorting machine sort of thing. Uh, it's just you're doing whatever you've been programmed to do. If naturalism is true and you have no soul, uh, then you, we lose what you talked about there is, is this intentionality, uh, right? That, that there's yeah. no aboutness, right? It's our soul that gives us our intentionality. And so without that, uh, I would, you know, the illustration I often use is like, you're like a calculator. And so if you program a calculator to when, when someone inputs two plus two, it equals four, and you program another calculator to say two, when you put two plus two, it equals seven, and you leave those two calculators in a classroom by themselves, uh, the calculators are not going to be able to figure out uh, which one is producing the correct answer to two plus two uh, because they don't have consciousness. They don't have intentionality. And so if you're going to say naturalism is true, there is no soul. You are just a programmed computer. You are just a programmed coin sorter. You are just a uh, whatever uh, your your consciousness and your intentionality is an illusion. Uh, you are just doing what you've been programmed to do. Then how would we be any different than a calculator that has been programmed to 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 say that two plus two equals seven, the calculator will never, without intentionality and consciousness, be able to know that it was programmed incorrectly. It doesn't have that sort of, uh, of thought process. And so would you say that that's a helpful kind of illustration uh, of what kind of a, a naturalistic position is, is we're calculators, um, therefore there's no soul. Without a soul, without that libertarian freedom, the calculator is not free, there's no intentionality, then it's impossible to actually have knowledge. The calculator doesn't have, know what it's doing, it's only doing what's been programmed to do, so it can't rationally infer any knowledge claims. But the fact that we can come to a conclu true conclusion, the fact that we can think about the math problem, know which one is true and false, then leads to your, uh, your points there. Would you say that's a kind of a helpful way to look, through, look at your argument here? Yeah, exactly. And I would I would point people to an article on my website, freethinkingministries.com. And I also discuss this on my YouTube channel. People want to go to YouTube and uh, search for Free Thinking Ministries. Please subscribe. And uh, I have the, I have a link to I have a link to your YouTube channel uh, in the description below. So if they go to your info, uh, I forgot to include this article in my other interviews with you. I'll add those later. But at least your website and uh, your yeah. social media and your YouTube channel is in the description below. Excellent. Thank you. Well, yeah. on on my website, uh, and like I said, I discussed this on the YouTube channel as well. Um, I have a, uh, an article on the website called Computers Don't Know Jack. And uh, I'll just I just pulled it up here on my phone. Let me read to you a, a quick little segment here. It says calculation versus inference to the best explanation. Um, there's a difference there. Uh, the subjector said, uh, do computers or calculators require free will to make accurate calculations. He says, of course not. And I said, well, no, they don't have free will to do that. But calculation is not the same as inference to the best explanation or what are referred to as the process of rational deliberation. 
This is clear to anybody who thinks about the nature of calculation. And then we get into intentionality again. Does a calculator think of and about what is shown on the screen? Of course not. To make this point crystal clear, consider the words of the eminent philosopher of mind and atheist, John Searle. He says, quote, computation has no intrinsic intentionality, but only secondary intentionality imparted by the programmers. Computation is not thinking. Computation is a mechanical process and nothing more, end quote. You know, and as I go on and quote another uh, computer uh, uh, philosopher of uh, computer science. And this guy told me a computer is just as rational as a power drill, right? There's something vastly different between what uh, human beings do and what uh, the most advanced computers could ever do. Um, and again, to quote uh, Alex Rosenberg in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, he says, the intentional working of your laptop can't really be about anything at all. So if we are thinking about the free thinking argument, then right away that we see that there's something different about us and computers. Yeah. So, or let alone calculators. And I think that's one reason I think it's Frank Turk that says that the, the very fact that you can make an argument for God's existence shows that God exists. Like that's one of the best arguments is the fact that you can make an argument. Uh, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting yeah. that you bring up the, again, the calculator example to say, well, the calculator uh, is programmed, but it needs an intelligent mind to program it, right? There has to be someone right. that's freely thinking in order to program a calculator, give you accurate results. If you don't have that, it goes back to what we talked about with the evolutionary explanation of saying this calculator was programmed by an evolutionary process that did not program it for truth, but simply what helped it survive better. And therefore you cannot know as a calculator if two plus two is actually four or seven or 15 because mm -hmm. it didn't, because you have to affirm based on the other argument we talked about, sorry if I'm confusing people right now, um, that a, that evolution, you would have to admit that evolution has programmed false beliefs, right? So if, if evolution programmed right. my mind to say God exists, and if God does not exist, then evolution has programmed a false belief. And so if you're going to admit that and then say the calculator, which is us, has been programmed by something that can program false beliefs, you have to admit that the calculator can be wrong. Now, side note, this is a problem for Christians as well. So we, we, we got to be fair here and we got to point out the problems on both sides here of the theistic aisle. There's a lot of Christians who say, well, God has programmed us, if you will, with cognitive faculties uh, aimed at truth. But as soon as they say that God exhaustively determines everything, now they're left with saying uh, that everything, every, every time that a human affirms a false belief, <laughs> let alone false theological beliefs, now God has causally determined that. So you're not left with a maximally great being. You're, you're left with a God of mischief like Loki from the Avengers or a divine false prophet. <laughs> so you got some major problems there you got to work through. But plus, if every uh, if I mean, think about uh, are you aware of the allegations that are going on right now with the uh, the election and the, the voting machines? Um, I'm not taking a position right now, but some of the allegations that are being made is that the programming of these voting machines was uh, that the programmer was nefarious, if you will. I'm not saying it's true. Right? I'm just saying that's what's being said. Don't lose me on and, my subscribers. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm, not making, I'm, not making, no. I'm not affirming this. I'm just saying, oh, let's just think of this as a thought experiment. They're saying uh, that 
even though these voting machines tallied most of the votes correctly, that it switched enough of them to overturn the election. Not saying it's true. But if that's the case, then you would have something that reaches true beliefs most of the time. That's, if you want to call it true belief, something that's reliable most of the time, but that is not reliable. And so if you apply that to God, that God is the nefarious uh, programmer, uh, now it's not reliable either. So I just uh, published an article on my website about that called Reaching Reliable Beliefs. I just published it um, this morning. So if anybody would want to read that, uh, this is related. Now, Tim, I, I have to ask you because I, I talked to a lot of Christians, as you mentioned, that, that will say, yeah, I believe in determinism, that God has predetermined all things and whatnot. Uh, but when I begin to, to ask questions and drill down on what they mean, they're not talking about divine, exhaustive, causal determinism. Uh, that, and I kind of, so I push back a lot of times as well, is like, I think most Calvinists, uh, believe that there's free will in the sense of like you can choose to eat vanilla or chocolate ice cream, right? They maybe apply it to salvation only, but not every single belief, every single action that you do. And even then I talked to a lot of Calvinists that do, I think, in my view, legitimately fit free will into God, God's election uh, from a Calvinist perspective. And so I, I guess I'm just kind of, uh, I would love for you to comment on this when, when you, um, when, when Christians or even Calvinists talk about determine God, determining all things, how many are actually describing exhaustive divine causal determinism versus God is in control. Uh, he is ultimately <laughs> sovereign, yeah. which is something that we would, we would both also completely and fully affirm. Mm -hmm. That's what the topic of my book is about. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's why I really pressed this and, and use the term exhaustive divine determinism, because I, that was my view. I didn't have a name for it at the time. Um, but I, I realized the word determined gets thrown around all the time and, and people conflate, well, are you talking about salvation issues or the choice, the, the ice cream, <laughs> uh, store, um, and, uh, or the ability to infer the best explanation, uh, you know, did Jay Warner Wallace, before he was a Christian, when he was still an atheist, did he possess the ability to rationally infer the best explanation of all the data, right? Or, you know, and if something causally determined him to infer or and affirm false beliefs, and he did not have that ability. But if he was free to weigh the evidence, pro and con, and, and reach conclusions, uh, then, then he was free, even as a as a non Christian, even though he's a Christian now. Uh, he was he was solving crimes before he was a Christian. Um, so, I, I started using the term exhaustive divine determinism to really, uh, you know, see who is committed to saying no. God causally determines everything, and to see who is saying, oh, okay, no, God causally determines X, Y, and Z, but not A, B, and C. Um, and, uh, and I said, okay, now wherever you land there, now we're going to have different conversations. So I guess, am I, am I answering your question? I kind of got well, off guess, track there. No, no, you're good. I guess, I guess my question was, is, is you mentioned, you know, a lot of Christians hold to, uh, exhaustive divine determinism. And, and so my question was like, is that actually a really strong popular Christian view within the Calvinist view? I, at least in, what I often say is I, I would say the minority of Calvinists, the vast minority, uh, affirm 
exhaustive divine determinism. I think I would say the majority of Calvinists believe in free will, maybe not when it comes to salvation, that's going to be different, but at least not when they're choosing who they're going to marry and where they're going to go to college and those sort of issues. I would push back on that and say at least it seems to me that if it's not the majority, it's a whole bunch of academic Calvinists okay. focus on this issue will affirm exhaustive divine determinism. So, uh, you know, and I quote many of them in my book. Um, but then it seemed, you know, uh, Guillaume Bignon is a fantastic uh, Christian uh, Calvinist philosopher, but he affirms exhaustive divine determinism. He and I have gone back and forth on this, and he's been very clear that he affirms that position. Um, uh, Matthew J. Hart, I quote him in my book. Uh, he affirms that in a, in a recent uh, book. Um, and he quotes uh, Paul Helm, who he says is the world's leading Calvinistic philosopher. He's an exhaustive divine determinist. Uh, then you go, you look at uh, guys that uh, like James White and John Piper. I mean, these guys are going to affirm that view as well. Uh, and, and so really, I think it's the minority uh, who are some of the, the Calvinists that also affirm what I call limited libertarian freedom. And by that, I mean uh, limited to things other than soteriological issues or salvation issues. Uh, Greg Kokel, um, you've had Greg on your show before, right, Ryan? Yes, I have. Yep. Okay. So Greg is an awesome guy. Um, he and I have debated uh, in person um, about a lot of issues, but one thing I love about him, even though he's a five-point Calvinist and I'm not, I reject the eye of Tulip. Um, but in my book, I show that you can be a five-point Tulip Calvinist and still affirm what I call mere Molinism. Um, and, and so I have, have an, an entire chapter uh, uh, focused on that. But Greg Kokel is awesome because even as a five-point Calvinist, he argues that we've got to have limited libertarian freedom. And I quote him in my book on a couple occasions uh, because his, his argument is so good. Um, you got guys like Oliver Crisp, who's very open to uh, libertarian freedom as a Calvinist. Uh, uh, great, uh, what's his name? Muller. I uh, can't think of his first name right now. Oh, can drive me nuts. Uh, uh, he, he's written a book on that. Um, Albert Muller? No, no, it's M-U-L-L-E-R. Maybe it's pronounced Mueller. Mueller, Mueller, I don't know. Um, I quote him in my book, though. Uh, and who else? Oh, Alvin Plantinga. I mean, he, you know, he's the guy behind Reformed epistemology. He considers himself to be a Calvinist, but he is the uh, one of the leading advocates of the free will defense. So he obviously he rejects exhaustive divine determinism. But I would say that these guys, at least among the academics, are in the minority of Calvinists who uh, affirm, you know, who, who would say, yeah, we've got to have at least free will in some things. Now, I will say I have a, an entire chapter devoted to Luther. I have another chapter devoted to Calvin. Both of these guys, Calvin himself would affirm limited libertarian freedom. And I've got the quotes in my book to demonstrate that. Uh, so Martin, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon, the uh, systematic theologian of the Reformation, all affirmed limited libertarian freedom. 
you don't start seeing exhaustive divine determinism until John Edwards hits hits the scene post Reformation. And uh, so I, th- I think he's the real culprit behind Ed, which, you know, it's part of his last name, Edwards. Uh, but I think he's the guy behind uh, much of the exhaustive divine determinism that we see today. And uh, I think Luther and Calvin and Melanchthon would disagree with him. So I think that's why Calvinism gets conflated with uh, exhaustive divine determinism today. But I don't think it should. Okay. No, I think that's good uh, and helpful. And my goodness, I, I knew this conversation would go longer than, uh, than originally panned. We're past an hour and we haven't gotten the last part yet. But uh, the question Sorry. that I started with, no, it's not your fault. I, I keep asking questions. Um, the, 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 the question I started with of this idea um, that really is presented in, in part eight of your argument. So I'll bring that back up again so people uh, can see that. Uh, here we go right there. Um, that's not it. That's another thing I'm looking at. Oh my goodness, I'm all over the place. Um, this should be part eight of your, there we go. Let me move my video. The best explanation for the existence of libertarian freedom is the soul uh, or the biblical and the biblical view of God. And so, uh, the, the quick objection that comes to this is saying, Tim, no, that's not a good explanation because if you're going to believe that you're free, then God is either not sovereign uh, or if he knows the future, uh, then you are you cannot be free. And this was, again, a big, a long conversation I had just this morning with a guy really trying to do everything I could to show him why God knowing the future does not take away his free will. Nothing I said really helped, uh, or at least was able to give uh, convince him of it. And so how would you respond to that objection that Christianity cannot be the best explanation because it will either destroy God's sovereignty and his being all-knowing and all-powerful, or it removes our free will? You can't have both. Yeah, I, I would uh, point him to the, uh, uh, or this atheist, um, to an article I wrote, short article called The Freedom to Trick God on my website but uh just think of it this way if god knows right we're talking about a maximally great being uh who is powerful enough uh to do anything logically possible and is intelligent enough to know exactly what would happen based on anything that he could do um so that follows from being both omnipotent and omniscient so if god uh knows that sally uh, if he created her in freedom permitting circumstances, uh, that she had the ability to choose X or not X, but knew that if he created Sally with libertarian freedom in freedom permitting circumstances, that Sally would choose, would freely choose X instead of not X, then God chooses to create Sally in freedom permitting circumstances then God knows that Sally will freely choose X instead of not X. Now, all that changed there is God knew that Sally would freely choose X if created in freedom-permitting circumstances. Then he creates Sally in freedom-permitting circumstances. Now he knows that Sally will freely choose X. All that changes is would freely changes to will freely, but the word freely doesn't magically disappear just because God knows it. He can, he's still powerful enough to create Sally in freedom permitting circumstances in which he is not causally determining her to choose X or not X. So at the, at minimum, we've got sourcehood freedom, but I think you can argue even more for, for an ability to choose otherwise here. So why is Um, it, Oh, sorry. Why is it that uh, people take out that word freely? 
Like, why is it so I common? It and that's where, like, I, I don't understand is you often hear this. It's like, well, but if God knows that it, it's not free, it's like, but why, why do we take yeah. that word free out of the equation? Well, they should that I haven't they, gotten a good, right. a good answer. Yeah, well, that, yeah. That's why I say libertarian freedom is not the ability to trick God. Right. That's why the, that article is called entitled the freedom to trick God. I think that's what I called it. Um, so what is, I, we've already discussed the, the uh, definitions the academic definitions of libertarian freedom. It is not the freedom to trick God or to do other than what God knows. That's simply not what it is. But knowledge does not stand in causal relation. So just because, you know, and a good illustration is imagine uh, an infallible weather barometer. I discussed this in my book, an infallible weather barometer. So any location and, and date that you type into this thing, it's going to spit out the, uh, the, the, per, the perfect weather forecast with no mistakes. It's infallible, right? So you punch in uh, uh, Spain 10 years from today, and it says, well, it will rain in Spain 10 years from today. Well, we wait around 10 years, and what happens? Well, lo and behold, it rains in Spain. Great. Well, was or did the weather barometer cause the rain in Spain? Of course not. There's no connection there. And so we that's an illustration showing that knowledge, even infallible knowledge, does not stand in causal relation. So, uh, so that's one objection against it. And secondly, it's just look at the sentence structure. God knows that Sally would freely choose X instead of not X if he creates her in freedom-permitting circumstances. God creates Sally and freedom permitting circumstances. Now God knows how Sally will freely choose, or that she will freely choose X instead of not X and freedom permitting circumstances. Again, all that changed was would freely to will freely, but that word freely doesn't magically disappear. And those who are taking it out um, seem to be trying to pull a fast one. Yeah, and that's where I, I think it's so important to point out it was happening again a lot this morning as I was trying to engage in these conversations this morning to see how maybe some of you as you engage in these conversations, what, what atheists will say. And again, they don't represent all atheists, but to get some idea, uh, one was actually frequently, can I surprise God? And I said, no, no. You, can't su you can't surprise him. Well, then I'm not no. free. Well, the, it's not true. your ability to shock someone or surprise them, or as you mentioned, trick them, does not right. take away your freedom just because they know you will do it. Like, I'm not surprised when I ask my wife and say, and say, hey, what do you want for dinner? And she says, you know, I would love some Asian food. Like, I'm not surprised by that. I just know that's her favorite type of food. And, yeah. um, and, and so because I know her. Now, again, but you could be wrong. Well, that's why it's an analogy. Of course, I could be wrong. I'm not all knowing, but my confidence or my ability to be wrong does not affect the freedom. And so that's a, yep. I, I wanted to highlight that because that was something that came up frequently this morning was, well, but can I surprise God? No, you can't. But that just doesn't take away my freedom. It's yeah. just because it just shows that he knows. The second thing I think that you pointed out, it, it, and it's something I frequently say, is that knowledge does not stand in a causal relationship with the physical world. And, and right. I love your infallible weather barometer. Uh, I use something with my students and I, I will hold up a marker in my classroom and I say, I know that if I drop the marker, it will fall. Does my knowledge <laughs> that it will fall cause it to fall? Right. Of course not. Um, right. Now, even if I let go, it's still the marker fell, but it's not my knowledge that it will fall that caused it to fall. Mm -hmm. Gravity's ca causing the marker to fall. Mm -hmm. 
And so knowing yeah. something will happen or something could happen does not cause it to happen. Knowledge is right. not in a causal relationship. Um, Good job. So, yeah, I mean, I it's and I wanted to hear your thoughts as well as, you know, share mine, because I think this is just something that that is hard for Christians to get and non-Christians of. Yeah. But God knows he knew that mm -hmm. I would choose him. Therefore, I had no choice. I couldn't have done otherwise. Well, of course you could have. You could have not chosen him, and, but yeah. he would have known now, that. Now, the open theist, well, I think open theism is wrong, but the open theist uh, just says, well, God doesn't know, so you're free. So that doesn't work. But, I, but I'm like, well, you don't even need to go there because uh, the definition of libertarian freedom is not the ability to trick God or to shock God. You know, what is the definition? Look at those. And God knowing how you will freely choose does not change the fact that it was freely chosen. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. So our last kind of point that I want to hit at, and then we do have a couple of questions that have come in for you um, on this. And again, um, kind of that, uh, yeah, I'll get to that in a second. But um, okay. So we, we've talked about now uh, the, the fact that free will does exist, uh, address the objection that God being all knowing and all powerful does not take away that free will. Now, how could you give, uh, I think it's important to kind of now look at scripture, right? So kind of not just a philosophical yeah. argument, but, but how, how does a biblical view of knowing who God is and how he has created us, how does that then provide the best explanation for our free will? So I'll try to fly over this. Uh, so conclusion eight, it's abductive. Uh, it's the inference to the best explanation, which I have pre previously just argued uh, you can't do apart from libertarian freedom. But then I, I, I do uh, engage in the inference to the best explanation and say, well, what is the best? After surveying all the data here, what explains this libertarian freedom in this other than nature aspect of humanity uh, in the best way? Uh, so I typically stop, uh, however, with a deductive conclusion. Uh, uh, or deductive deductive conclusions five, six, and seven, uh, and and just you know, you know give conclusion eight and passing that abductive move. But let's uh, let's let's break it down a little bit here. Um, what's the best explanation of the immaterial, non-physical, and other than nature supernatural soul? So right off right off the bat, we can rule out naturalistic evolution. Why is that? Because it seems. Uh, seems to be an unlikely candidate to account for the existence of a supernatural thing, yeah. uh, you know, something other than nature, something immaterial, uh, a soul. Uh, you need a better explanation. And in fact, I've talked to evolutionary biologists that would say, nah, uh, if humanity does have an immaterial soul, evolution can't uh, explain it, um, especially naturalistic evolution. So then we need a better explanation. Well, I think it's God and more specifically the biblical view of God. But uh, before I get to the Bible, let's go to another argument. I bet mo uh, at least many, if not most of your viewers, uh, Ryan, know about the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, I can go they, to several. If they don't, I'll make a quick plug for my own channel. William Lynn Craig was on here to discuss the Kalam cosmological argument and present objection or answer objections against it. So you can go check out that video. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I could I could do this with the Leibnizian cosmological argument. I could do it with the ontological argument. Uh, probably even do it with the moral argument. Uh, but the Kalam is easy. So, uh, and, and in my opinion, it's one of the most intriguing arguments for the existence of God. So, uh, I've written about this argument and defended it against many objections. You had Dr. Craig on 
to do that. So we, we don't need to go over that right now. So uh, let's just uh, focus on, well, let, let me give the, the, the argument here briefly. One, premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe had a cause. Now, uh, yeah, so we're not going to defend the premises right now for the sake of time. So let's just uh, look at the conclusion. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, the universe, uh, I mean, that's a great conclusion. The universe has a cause. Big deal. It doesn't say anything about God or anything else. So let's now define the universe. The universe is anything and everything that is in time and space, including time and space, everything that is physical, material, uh, and can be tested scientifically. Now, given this description, the cause of the universe can't be anything that fits within the definition of the universe. And to argue otherwise, one is left affirming logical incoherence like uh, the exist, uh, you know, the universe existed before it began to exist. Right? So you can't do that. That's crazy. It created talk. itself. Yeah, right, right. That doesn't make any sense. So need a better explanation. So what could have caused the universe to exist logically prior to the existence of all nature? Now, when you think about nothingness, right, absolutely uh you know, when you're thinking about uh, absolutely nothing, then there's nothing to have a causal influence on anything else, right? Nothingness is causally impotent and therefore could not have caused the universe to bang into existence. Uh, that being the case, two very important questions demand answers. One, what could exist apart from the space-time uh, and apart from space-time and matter and still have a causal relation with the physical uh, slash material universe? And two, what attributes or properties must this cause of all nature uh, possess? So this gets us into the rational inferences. Now, if the cause of the universe transcends space and time, then logically it's gotta be timeless. And that means that whatever was the cause of time would have had no beginning uh, because a, a beginning necessitates time. But if the cause existed apart from time and had no beginning, it can be inferred logically that this cause had no cause of its own as it logically never began to exist and seems to exist necessarily. So it exists outside of time or exists eternally. Now, moreover, as the Big Bang seems to be the beginning of uh, all space-time, and, and even if it wasn't, as Alan Guth has noted, an atheist uh, physicist, uh, there must have been a mother, you know, it says a mother of all beginnings somewhere. Then, if that's the case, it logically follows that the cause of the universe, of all nature, had to have been spaceless. And this means that the cause of the universe, or all nature, would have no size or shape. It was utterly immaterial. So, accordingly, the Kalam takes naturalism off the table as a possible model of reality. Now, we've already done that with the free-thinking argument, but this here we see another argument is doing that. Um, now, uh, beyond this ultimate cause being outside of time and being immaterial. Another inference is that it must be enormously powerful because I can't think of anything that would require more power than creating and causing an entire universe to come into, into existence from nothing. Yeah. Uh, moreover, not only did the cause of the universe have to have been apart from time and space, it also had to, had to have had the ability or the power to spontaneously bring the world into existence without anything causing it to do so. Because then, if that were the case, whatever the cause of the cause was would be the cause. But since this cause exists outside of anything physical, temporal, or material, none of these things could logically cause or force this ultimate cause to do anything. 
Therefore, what follows from that? The ultimate cause of the universe seems to have its own volition or libertarian free will, right? It's got libertarian freedom to act or not act. Now, apart from anything abstract, which if abstract objects exist by definition, they're causally impotent anyway. But apart from anything abstract, only an unembodied mind or a soul, something like we've concluded in the free thinking argument, could logically exist in nothingness, transcending space-time and all nature. So think about this. Persons are the only types of things that could possibly possess immaterial minds with free will. Again, this is supported by the free-thinking argument. I, I call this an immaterial free-thinking thing. Right? That's, that's how I define uh, a, a soul, as Im an immaterial free-thinking thing. Um, so therefore, we can decipher that the cause of the universe is a personal being. Right? Because persons are the only types of things that have minds or souls, if you will, uh, with libertarian freedom. If the cause of the universe then is a personal kind of thing, then it's possible, it's at least possible that it, whatever it is, can have a personal relationship with other personal beings. Uh, you and I are personal beings, therefore it's at least possible that you and I can have a personal relationship with the cause of the universe. Now, I like to call the cause of the universe God. Uh, but one is free to call uh, to call this cause whatever they'd like. However, as Shakespeare said, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. So here's the deal. Although the soul, which we uh, deductively concluded exists, uh, doesn't make much sense on atheistic naturalism or on naturalistic evolution, it does make sense in a theistic worldview which the Kalam gives us, right? The Kalam simply appeals to logic and science and does not touch any religious book whatsoever. Be that as it may, the attributes that we've drawn from the conclusion correspond perfectly with the way the Bible describes God's properties. Yeah. So the Kalam provides evidence of, let's call it the ultimate mega mind behind the universe, which also makes perfect sense regarding the immaterial mini minds within the universe. Uh, that humans seem to have based on the free thinking argument. So that is to say that the human soul fits quite nicely in a theistic worldview. And so I think it's a really good explanation. But I don't like to simply stop at the mere existence of God. Rather, I, I've suggested something even more, that the biblical view of God is the inference to the best explanation of the existence of the immaterial soul. This is because the biblical view of both God and soul are clear. So uh, just consider... Uh, both the Old and New Testaments. I'll just give you a passage from both. Um, uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, let us make man in our image, or I think a better translation says, let us make man in our likeness. It goes on, it says, male and female, God created them in his image or in his likeness. So uh, we've already seen, based on the Kalam, what God is like, an immaterial, free-thinking thing. So if you're going to say, well, let us make man in our likeness, all right, when you when you we look in the mirror, that's not what God, that's not what God is like. God doesn't have a body, right? He made bodies. So we can't have a body. So what is it about us? Well, it's a thing that I think that we deductively concluded in the free thinking argument, an immaterial free thinking thing. Um, that makes sense of let us make man in our image or likeness. And now let's go to the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? He also makes other uh, statements like, I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body, things like that. But but here we see, um, well, not to mention with other, you know, the Kalam, 
these passages, not to mes- uh, mention other passages like, you know, God is spirit. We know that God is not composed of anything physical. So it follows that God is not the kind of thing that photons would bounce off of to then penetrate the retina to stimulate our optic nerves, providing an image to our brain. No, uh, that could not be what the author uh, had in mind when he spoke of humanity being created in the image or likeness of God in the first chapter of Genesis. So this image better described as likeness, I think, you know, God is imperial and supernatural mind, and so is the human soul. And moreover, I'll touch on that second Corinthians, you know, Paul tells us that we can exist apart from the body, but based on the logical law of identity, if a person can exist, if a person can exist apart from his body, then he is not identical with his body. Yeah. All right. JP Moreland would say, even if he never does, right. If a person can, if there's, uh, Something, if it's even possible for a person to exist apart from his body, even if he never does, then there is something uh, different about you and your body. You are not your body then. So Paul is referring to you, an immaterial, an immaterial human mind that has a body, but can continue to exist apart from it. So this immaterial mind is the human soul created in the image or likeness of God. Now, given the fact that we have argued both, one, the immaterial minds exist, within the universe and two that we have it we have evidence of a mega mind behind the universe right an immaterial mega mind behind the universe we've done all this without touching a bible and then we looked at biblical data that uh says the same thing i I say look we can show this stuff without touching a bible perhaps we should take the bible seriously when it affirms the exact same thing so anyway that's why i believe that the biblical view of god is the best explanation of the immaterial and uh, libertarianly free human soul, which we've already deductively concluded exists. So that's a quick flyover of why I think eight is true. No, that is so wonderful and a, and a great explanation because again, it, it's it, the, it's just funny because in my a lot of my conversations uh just this last week online it's like someone said that i i think i they they said i had a mental illness because i believed in christianity right you you often hear this like really slamming christians as being the most ignorant stupid mentally crazy insane people for believing what we do and it's like like there there are good reasons to be a christian and it's not just my bible says so therefore and right. again, like there's good reasons to believe that scripture is true. And if scripture says something, then it's true. And there's good reason to believe it. But we can even go outside of scripture for those who do not accept that as authoritative. And we can look at all of these different ways of arguing for the existence of souls and mind and free thinking and then draw logical conclusions. And it yep. fits so well. And so hopefully being able to use this. And so uh, in this you know, conversation, my goal was to, to have people be able to, to know clearly what scripture has to say uh, and why we really Christianity is the best explanation uh, that, that God as, a, as an eternal immaterial mind with, that, that, that is free uh, can create us in that same way. We made in the image and likeness of God uh, have that ability, uh, but then also uh, matching that up to reality and then showing why an atheist, naturalist, materialist perspective doesn't work and, and hopefully giving us the ability and the confidence to be able to, to, be able to work through some of these objections uh, with atheists. Now, uh, a few questions came in for you that are kind of on this topic, uh, maybe a little bit different. Um, so let me pull it up uh, here. Um, 
the first one, um, Audra wrote in and she says, um, do animals have the ability to rationally infer? And she says, uh, the reason why is that she says, um, I would tend to agree. I was just thinking about an evolutionist uh, atheist asking what makes us different from animals. And so talking about kind of the image of God in yeah. us, uh, do you have some thoughts on this and how we can say uh, we are unique in our thinking ability because of the image of God versus animals not creating the image of God? Um, how would you kind of, uh, yeah, help Addison? Or, uh, sorry, Audrey, I actually, Addison. I actually think animals have souls. <laughs> um, uh, J.P. Moreland would say the same, but there's yeah, something different. I had J.P. Moreland on and uh, so I can, again, put that kind of up in the corner, but um uh, yeah. That question came in from Moreland, but anyway, sorry, cut you off. Oh, did it? Yeah, I think, uh, in my opinion, J.P. Moreland is uh, the best when it comes to uh, issues about the existence of the soul um, and the faculties of the soul and what separates animals from humans and things like that. Uh, I do think there is something different about being in the uh, image of God that I have that uh, my dog doesn't have. I, and I ask my dog all the time if if uh if he's got a soul or if he's got free will and he's never given me a straight answer um but uh <laughs> but i think he does i don't think he's got free will um i don't think he has the ability to uh, uh I, I think he reacts and i think he is able to engage in means to end uh reasoning so for example there's two doors to my bedroom uh, you can get in through the bathroom or you can get in uh, uh, through the door, the room. And if one of the doors is closed, he wants to get to me. He, he'll check one. And if it's closed, he's going to go to the other one. Um, or if uh, if I hide a, a treat from him, um, he's, he's just going to keep looking and looking until he finds it. Now, that's a form of reasoning. But he does not have the ability uh, to think about uh, competing hypotheses to think about the laws of logic and the rules of reason uh, and to infer uh, better, uh, you know, to rationally infer or affirm claims of knowledge. That's a different kind of thing that separates humanity from the animals. Uh, now, this could also get us into conversations about externalism and internalism. Uh, at this point of my studies, I, I don't rule out Either. I, I mean, I definitely affirm internalism, uh, but I also say, but I think we could have externalism uh, working as well with different kinds of knowledge. But there's some kinds of knowledge that I think you have to uh, have. Uh, and many of your viewers probably aren't aren't aware of the difference between uh, th this is a epistemology that I'm getting into right now. But anyway, I think this uh, internalism might be what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. That doesn't mean that I can't possess some knowledge like my dog possesses, but it does mean that my dog doesn't have access to some of the reasoning and uh, process of rationality and reason-based knowledge claims uh, that I can do. Um, no animals can do that. So that, that's what separates us. Uh, and I think that's what the image of God allows us to do. Yeah. And I've often heard a point, you know, it's like uh, your dog can think, but it doesn't think about its thoughts. So your dog's not sitting there exactly. pondering, the ex pondering, well, you know, why am I here? What, you know, what should I do today? Should I, is this going to bring enjoyment if I go eat my food? No, it like sees food and goes, right. oh, food, good, you know, yeah. uh, sort of kind of thought yeah. process. We, we, um, yeah, I'm talking about critically, the ability to critically evaluate our most basic beliefs. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, another question here from uh, SlamRN. Uh, do you think God made the best world, which will bring about the most free-thinking creatures who would choose to follow him? So this kind of gets into our Molinism, right? Yeah, I do think that. Uh, can I prove it? Uh, no, nah, you know what? Maybe I could uh, craft a deductive syllogism based on perfect bank theology. Uh, but I do, I do believe that that is uh, the case. That, and I and I would make a distinction between the best of all. Uh, let's see, what was it? Could do you think God made the best world? Which, yeah. So this gets us into the best possible world versus the best feasible world, um, and feasibility is a subset of possible worlds. Uh, and so different uh, philosophers, even different Molinist philosophers, uh, like Kirk McGregor, will say that there's a, not just a best possible world, but there's a range of alternative options of equally tied for the best possible worlds. And he and I have talked about that. And I said, well, may, there could potentially be a best of all feasible worlds where uh, enough, uh, the, the most uh, free creatures in the libertarian sense uh, do not reject God's love and grace for eternity. You know, that, that there might be a best of all feasible worlds. But yeah, to answer uh, this question, I do think that God uh, created uh, the best world, um, either uh, one of the best possible worlds or perhaps the best feasible world uh, that would bring about the most uh, free thinking creatures into a love relationship with him and others for all eternity. That's wonderful. That's what I would argue for. Yeah. All right. Thank you for answering that. Now, I don't see any more questions in the live chat. So if I missed your question, if you're like, wait, I put one, uh, post it again or, or highlight it for me so I can see it. I have one more question that came in uh, from Instagram for you. Um, and then we'll see if there's any last ones in the live chat before we finish up. Um, but this one, uh, do you address, how do you address the problem of practical atheists in the church? So maybe at least in, in, in my understanding, uh, or at least the way that I teach it is practical atheists being, uh, those that would say, I believe in God, I'm a Christian, but live as if God does not exist. Uh, so the belief in God, and it maybe hasn't practically changed their life. I don't know if this person uh, holds to a different view of practical atheist. But what would you say about addressing the problem of a practical atheist in the church? So this is somebody that affirms the truth of Christianity, but doesn't live like it. So at least like in my textbook, uh, and so I don't know if they if they've maybe heard me mention this on the show before or not. So I'm assuming it's the same definition as what I would use. But in in like my textbook for my students, uh, practical atheist is defined as as really as you you affirm the existence of God, but your life you you don't live as it. You live like an atheist in the sense you live as if God's. Uh, uh, desire, God's will, not live as an atheist that you're a horrible, mean person. That's not what I'm saying. So just to clarify that, um, I don't think that all atheists are, are evil. It's you live as if God's desire, God's truth, God's word doesn't affect your decisions. So what God, what God has revealed to us doesn't apply to your politics. It doesn't apply to your work. It doesn't apply to your relationship. Uh, and so it's like this kind of almost uh, practically you live as if there's no God, even though You've separated your religion and, and your and your practical living. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I uh, I really get frustrated with the church uh, with Christians when they do this. Uh, and you know, I've written uh, several articles calling people out um, on this topic about look, if you really believe that Christianity is true, uh, then you would look at what Jesus said, taught, and exemplified, and try to live accordingly. Uh, and he. But if you really believe that Christianity is true, then you would look at how Jesus said to, uh, you know, the, the greatest um, 
commands are to love God first and everybody love everybody. You could break it down that way. And so I say, look, if you're going to live this way, you are not, I mean, look at how, is this loving your neighbor? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you know, is, is whatever the topic is, uh, you know, looking at uh, abortion, the topic of abortion, I'm like, Oh, look, uh, you say you're a Christian and you're pro-choice. Uh, are you loving your baby neighbor? You know, <laughs> is that, is that consistent? Um, it, you know, that's just one example off the top of my head. Um, yeah. I, so I push people for consistency, logical consistency, and I'm not doing anything that wasn't done to me. You know, when I was probably 20 years old, I had a, a guy um, stop me. I was working, I was working my way through college. And so I was working at this factory part time and uh, I was in the corner of this factory with this guy and he on the side, he owned a Christian music store. And so he was always playing uh, Christian music it was driving me nuts because even though I, was, I said I was a Christian, man, I wanted to go, you know, I was listening to my Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and Metallica and, you know, some other rap and things like that. <laughs> and uh, I, I could live however I wanted um, and not have to be convicted uh, by hearing these, uh, you know, the messages from Kurt Cobain. But uh, when he was playing DC talk and audio adrenaline and the newsboys and Petra and striper yeah. and all these Christian bands of the, the eighties and, and early nineties. And, and, uh, the, the word started to convict me. And then he said, you know, Tim, you always say you're a Christian, but nobody would ever know it by how you're living and how you're talking and uh, how, you know, what you're doing on the weekends. He goes, are you really a Christian? And if you are, then you should live like it. And man, that shook me. And, uh, you know, I realized I needed to start living consistently if I really believed it was true. And uh, so then, you know, several years later, I started looking into, I mean, I, I did believe it was true back then. And I did start making uh, changes. That guy took me to a DC talk concert and I saw him play Jesus freak. And that changed my life. Nice. <laughs> I grew up on that song. I did. I had no right. So, uh, um, but then uh, several years later, back in starting in 2008, I realized, man, I, is there a reason to think Christianity is true? And I realized, wow, there's really good reason. Yeah. To th so many reasons to think that Christianity is true. Um, but yeah, so I just encourage people. I challenge people in the same way I was challenged. If you think Christianity is true, then you should live like it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And that really is kind of the goal of my channel it is, is not just knowing what you believe, but then faithfully living out the Christian worldview yeah. and knowing that the Christian beliefs apply to every aspect of life. And so we, we talk about, you know, abortion and sexuality and, and just yeah. last week, immigration. What is, what does the Bible have to say on immigration? Like the, the Christian worldview speaks into every aspect of life. And so to live as if it doesn't, I think, shows that you don't understand the Christian worldview. You don't understand what scripture has to teach. And we have to go back and go, hold on, what does the Bible teach? Because we see that it's relevant. Uh, so last question here for you that came in. Uh, back to the free will conversation. Audra wrote in another one. Thank you, Audra. Uh, will we have free will in heaven? Yep. <laughs> so I'm fact, curious because I know there's, there's two different ways in which uh, people make this work. Uh, I'm curious which of the two ways, I mean, there's probably more, but there's two ways that I often present, which would, how, how, how do uh, we have free will in heaven? Uh, I'm, I'm open to two possibilities, uh, but I do think there's one that is the inference to the best explanation. And I spend a lot of time in the final chapter of this book talking <laughs> about 
One more and plug. Why, and why we do. And I think once we realize, so look, I, I argue that we were created uh, on purpose and for the uh, specific purpose to be in a true love relationship with God and others. I think that makes sense of Jesus's greatest commands to love God and everybody, right? So that's why you exist. Then I go on to, to show that true love, or at least the best kind of love, uh, requires libertarian freedom. So if we are to exist in a state of affairs in which we can have true love or the best kind of love with God and others into the infinite future, then we've got to have free will into the infinite future. Well, uh-oh, problem, you know. Uh, uh, what Doesn't that mean we're going to sin in heaven? Well, that's the next right? question. I'm like, no. Yeah, can't we <laughs> sin in heaven? I, I would say you you could, right? You can. You could sin in heaven, but you never would sin in heaven. So I would say look at the philosophical difference between the words could and would. Why does God allow us to live for several decades on this rock, suffused with pain, evil, suffering, and affliction? Well, according to 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says these light momentary afflictions, being sarcastic, by the way, because he knew what it meant to suffer, these light momentary afflictions prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Well, how does that prepare us? Because we learn how stupid it is not to always follow God's commands. We learn how stupid it is not to love God. We learn how stupid it is not to love each other. And I know that's going to raise more questions. I, I discuss this in my book. I discuss it more on my website, freethinkingministries.com. I uh, also have a, some videos on it uh, on my YouTube channel. But I do believe that we will have free will for eternity. Uh, what What is it that's, that makes me different than... Adam, Eve, Satan, and a third of all the angels who were created in a suffering-free state of affairs in the presence of God, yet took that state of affairs, that suffering-free state of affairs of perfection for granted, and they all wrecked it. Well, why won't we? Because we've experienced pain, evil, suffering, and affliction. And as Paul says, that prepares us for eternity. How does it prepare us? Because now in heaven, we'll be too smart for that. We're not going to make the same mistakes that Adam and Eve, Satan, and a third of all the angels uh, did. So read my book, uh, study more on the—I uh, yeah. I know that's going to raise more questions, but— uh, Well, hopefully maybe... hopefully, those are questions that have kind of been addressed in the past in the sense that, like, you know, I have a similar response. I, I, I don't know if you learned it originally from uh, Clay Jones, uh, but that's—you know, I, I frequently use his illustration. I think he shared it on my channel before, but, he, you know, in our class, I'm sure he did it yeah. with your class. He always takes a pen and goes, and, yep. you know, who wants to see me put this pen in my eye? And says, I will never do it. <laughs> Why? Because it's stupid. Yeah. Um, that's right. so I, I, I can, I can put this pen in my eye, but I never will. It, you can give me a hundred years, a million years. I'm never going to take a pen and just intentionally yeah, stab right. it in my eye. We recognize the goodness of eyesight. So I think that's definitely one way that, that people go is, um, that, that we can sin in heaven, but we absolutely never will. Once we've experienced the goodness of God, the stupidity of sin, um, we will never do it. Uh, just right. like I think J.P. Moreland yeah. uses the more extreme version of a pen. He says, you'll never eat a steaming pile of dog poop. Uh, yeah. you, you can. You never, yeah. ever, ever yeah. will because you realize how yeah. gross that is. Right. There's nothing causally determining you to do otherwise. There's no strings attached. You could do it, but you never would do it. And yeah. so I, I just focus on the difference between could and would. There's a big philosophical difference there. And just because you could do it, 
doesn't mean you would do it. And I, I think uh, we learn from pain, evil, and suffering, and uh, and that that's how we're sanctified. And that's uh, that, I think that's how God can guarantee the perseverance of the saints uh, without violating human libertarian freedom. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there is, you know, the second response and, you know, I, I said, Tim, this conversation could go for two hours. Let's, I really, let's try to keep it to one hour. And here we are at an hour 47. So we've already just blown the time out of the, out of the water. So why not one more question? So the second, I think way, and I'm curious why you, why you don't think this one is as, as good of an explanation. The second way that you often hear is that our natures will actually be made new to where we will be like God in that sense, where God is a free being, but he can't sin because it goes against his nature. So in how you've defined libertarian free will at the beginning of the ability to choose between a range of options, each of which is consistent with our nature, this idea yeah. that our natures will be fundamentally changed to where we can't sin yet still have the ability to choose a range of options. Therefore, we have free will in heaven. We can't sin just like God has free will. He is a free being yet can't sin. So I'm curious. So those would be like the, the two, I guess, Christian explanations I hear uh, that we can sin, but we won't versus we can't because we're like God. Uh, why do you think that one is maybe not as uh, good of an explanation? We've learned the value of sin now, but then our natures get changed. Well, our nature is changed with knowledge, right? The, the knowledge that we gain here is, uh, it changes us, right? So, our, our, so uh, there is a sense in which my nature is changed, except it's, it doesn't violate libertarian freedom. And so you don't have to say uh, then that you can't uh, do it. You just, or that you could not do it. You just never would do it. Um, but I am open to another version that still requires the libertarian freedom to make the intentional choice not to resist God's love and grace. And once you do that, it's like stepping over, you know, across this uh, line, uh, you know, where I've heard God being compared to this, uh, uh, you know, the most powerful magnet ever. And you're, you're like this uh, iron filing who's making a choice to, you know, that if man, if I step one more foot closer uh, to God, or if I stop resisting his grace, then I'll be one step closer to God. Um, and then I will be irresistible, irresistibly pulled to this magnet and, and it'll be impossible for me to ever leave, uh, this force. I'm open to that. I've written about it on my website. I just think at the end of the day, it's not as good. Um, and especially when you look at Satan, uh, Satan was, um, did not have a sin nature. Uh, he was in the presence of God, um, yet he still rebelled. Um, and I, I think uh, he didn't have the blessing <laughs> of suffering. Um, so yeah. what? So I, I just, uh, you know, you know, it seems to me that we'll we won't have. I mean, it, you know, I keep going back to. I mean, Satan or Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, but Satan didn't have a tempter. And unless one's going to say that God causally determined him to rebel that, well, if somebody says that, then Satan did exactly what he was supposed to do. And God's the author of evil. And that's going to bring up a whole, a whole slew of issues, and yeah. more problems. No. No, so I'm just good. like, what is it that separates us? And I, I think, I think my explanation is the best explanation. It might not be perfect. There might be some holes in it. Uh, I'd like to hear them. But uh, 
but I think it's the best. Yeah. Well, Tim, I'm my goodness. I, I so appreciate you taking the time uh, here to to work with through these things with us, helping us see not only that free will does exist, how that uh, we can use that in conversations against uh, naturalism, you know, talking with atheists, as well as pointing to, I think, the beauty of heaven and what it will be like to be free creatures, full of love in the presence of God, no sin and, and what that is to look forward to. So thank you so much for spending a lot of extra time with us today and helping us work through uh, this fun yet often difficult and sometimes confusing topic of free will. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Ryan. And uh, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, you have a lot of information there. A lot of information, I think, resources at Tim's website, as well as his book that you can check out. Again, if you want to continue to think through how to know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview, maybe it's on the topic of souls, you can click on this video. There's another video I'm going to put below on neuroscience and the existence of the soul. What does neuroscience have to say? And really another way to argue that the soul is real and pointing to the existence of God. So with that, I will see you next week on a conversation about the Trinity. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you're watching this before Thanksgiving. And I'll see you next week with a conversation on the Trinity and divinity of Jesus. Very theological. I'm super pumped about that. So come back. See you guys later. Have a blessed rest of your week and continue to think deeply about God and Jesus because, as you know, they are worth thinking about. See you guys. I just